Murder in the North, Episode 21, The Woman Who Started the Fire. In the early hours of Monday, the 28th of August, 1995, the fire brigade on Bornholm, a Danish island in the Baltic Sea, receives a call from a local resident. Flames and smoke are billowing out of the house at Helsevi number 12. The emergency services arrive on the scene shortly after. They find a seven-year-old boy lying on the lawn behind the house. He's badly burnt, but conscious. A medic and a firefighter ask him if there's anyone else inside. The boy replies, My mother, my little brother, and the woman who started the fire. When the fire brigade managed to get inside the house, they find the charred corpse of a woman, as well as the body of the four-year-old boy, dead in his cot. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Yana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. The victims of this tragedy are the Hansen family. The dead woman is Nurse Birgit, who's married to Bent, a doctor. They were both born in Bornholm and work at the hospital in Rona, the island's biggest city. It's where they first met and fell in love. In 1989, shortly before they marry, Birgit gives birth to their first son. Three years later, they have another boy. There's no trace of Bent in the smoking ruins on Helsevi. It takes the police several hours to locate him. It turns out that he's in Copenhagen, where he's due to start a course that Monday morning. He had travelled to the capital the day before. The police go to see Bent at the course venue to inform him of the death of his wife and younger son. The sole survivor of the fire is his eldest son, Soren. The boy has suffered burns to more than 70% of his body and is being kept in an artificial coma. In the weeks that follow, Soren fights for his life in a hospital in Copenhagen. While he's unconscious on a ventilator, one of his lower legs is amputated, as is much of his other foot. But sadly, he doesn't pull through. A month after the fire, Soren succumbs to his injuries. That Monday, the morning of the fire, Bent is quizzed about potential perpetrators. He immediately accuses a former lover he met in 1994. The woman in question is 40-year-old Elizabeth Waver, who worked as a locum doctor in Rona Hospital that year. 
Bent had been unable to resist the intelligent woman who was about to qualify as a paediatrician. And rumours were soon swirling among hospital staff about an affair between the two. The relationship lasts a year, and during that time, Elizabeth starts making plans for a shared future with Bent. She repeatedly urges him to leave his family to start a new life with her. But Bent won't hear of it. In the summer of 1995, he tries to end the affair on a number of occasions, but keeps putting it off. Finally, in early August, he takes the plunge and admits to his wife, Birgit, that he cheated on her. Birgit herself had a fling a few years earlier, and their marriage weathered that crisis. Bent reassures her that this infidelity didn't mean anything, and that he's fully committed to his marriage. A few weeks later, on the 27th of August, Bent drives to Copenhagen to attend the course. Elizabeth, who's no longer a locum doctor at the hospital on Bornholm, is now working at a hospital in Copenhagen. Knowing that Bent will be in the capital, she gets in touch with him so they can talk. That Sunday afternoon, they go for a long walk along Langerleine Pier, and Elizabeth begs Bent to spend one last night with her. She's desperate for a child, irrespective of Bent's decision to stay with his family. But Bent stands by his decision. He loves Birgit and their children and doesn't want to continue his relationship with Elizabeth. He tells her it's over. So who is this woman who fell head over heels for Bent and who tried everything in her power to keep him? Elizabeth Weaver was born in 1954 in Hardeslev, a small town in southern Denmark. Her family are well off and live a life of privilege. Her father owns a big local car dealership, while her mother is a housewife who looks after the family's three children. Elizabeth works hard in school, and with her calm nature and good marks, she easily secures a place at the grammar school in Hardeslev. While there, she concentrates on her homework, but she also proves to be a good tennis player and an excellent musician. As a teenager, Elizabeth falls in love for the first time, but her feelings for her classmate aren't reciprocated. Unable to accept the rejection, she bombards the object of her affections with numerous desperate phone calls. Meanwhile, she dreams of studying music at the conservatoire and occasionally talks of doing a degree in dentistry. Eventually, she decides to enroll at the University of Aarhus to study medicine, with the aim of becoming a paediatric surgeon. She turns out to be a good paediatrician, and soon lands a job in the children's ward at Riggs Hospitalet, the largest hospital in the country. For those wanting to specialise in this field, this is the best place. Like many of her ambitious colleagues, she also attends many conferences and courses at home and abroad to develop her professional skills and knowledge. Once again, Elizabeth falls madly in love, this time with an anaesthetist. And once again, the feelings aren't mutual. But that doesn't stop Elizabeth from calling the man day and night. 
Eventually, he contacts the police to put a stop to this endless barrage of phone calls. Elizabeth confides in a colleague. She misses having a man around and longs to have a child, she says. But she's unlucky in love. Then, during her time as a locum at the hospital of Bornholm, she meets Vent. It's the third time that love hits her like a bolt of lightning. But when Bent draws a line under their affair, Elizabeth has had enough of the constant rejection. She books a flight to Bornholm under a false name, and with a wig and a stolen dose of morphine in her doctor's bag, she flies to Rona in the early evening. Around half past nine, she knocks on the door of Bent and Birgit's house on Helsevai. Elizabeth knows that Bent is in Copenhagen and that his wife and two sons are home alone. The forensic experts are unable to reconstruct the course of events in exact detail. But what is certain is that in the early hours, fires are ignited in three separate places inside the house. They spread quickly and intensively. Birgit is found in a chair in the living room with high levels of morphine in her blood. Her body is burnt beyond recognition. The autopsy reveals that she was dead before the fire started. Her four-year-old son is lying in his cot and died from smoke inhalation, probably in his sleep. The eldest son managed to fight his way out of the burning house. After his escape, he collapsed on the lawn, exhausted and with burns to about 70% of his body. Only one person knows exactly what happened that night, Elizabeth. But her version of events differs significantly from the police's theory. What we do know is that Elizabeth left the house in the early morning and at no point alerted either the fire brigade or the police. After leaving the house on Helsovai, she walks across a newly cut field towards the sea. From there, she phones her colleagues at the hospital to inform them that she's going to be a bit late. Then she takes a dip in the sea before making her way back to the airport. She boards a morning flight to Copenhagen and drives straight to work. As soon as she finishes her shift, she heads home and washes the clothes she wore the previous night. She also visits the hairdresser for a trim. When the police arrive on Elizabeth's doorstep later that day, she denies any involvement in the arson. She claims to have been in Copenhagen all this time, not on Bornholm. But when the police search her house, they find a ticket to the island under the name Anna Johansson and a checklist with the following items. Elastic cannula... Pills dissolved in water, gloves, razors, syringes, t-shirt. The next day, Elizabeth appears before the court in Rona, where the magistrate decides to remand her in custody. As she's escorted into the courthouse, she's covered in a blanket and has a police jacket draped over her head. Elizabeth's lawyers have asked for their client not to be named, and in the weeks and months that follow, 
there is much speculation on the island. Who could be responsible for that appalling fire? More than a year later, in October 1996, Elizabeth's trial finally gets underway. She has since admitted to being on the island and in the house. But she claims that she and Birgit only talked to each other and that the fire must have started accidentally. Sitting in the courtroom in Rona is a woman who looks quite unlike your average suspect. Now 42, slender and straight-backed, the doctor is dressed in a smart trouser suit and has an elegant blue scarf tied around her neck. The police have done everything they could to verify the defendant's statements, and in the course of the investigation, a great many experts have been asked for their professional opinion on the development of the fire. The court, which is normally based in Copenhagen, has relocated to Bornholm for this trial. The case has attracted so much attention that on the opening day, there are long queues outside the court building. And while there are places reserved for the press, the room in which one of Denmark's most prominent murder cases will be heard has only 45 seats, so many of the interested parties waiting outside won't get in. Present in the courtroom are 12 jury members, three judges, the public prosecutor, Birgit Vesberg, and the counsel for the defence, Thomas Rordam. He's a prominent barrister with many years of experience under his belt, who counts the Hell's Angels among his clients. Elizabeth doesn't have a criminal record, and there's no denying she's an ambitious, intelligent and successful woman. But a psychological evaluation reveals another side to her character. A psychiatrist concludes that Elizabeth has psychopathic tendencies and finds her to be narcissistic. The two earlier unrequited loves are mentioned in court, as is the way she terrorised the men after they turned her down. There's an abundance of forensic evidence about the way the fire started and spread, and this is corroborated by experts. That's why the trial lasts only three days. One of the witnesses who testifies is the emergency responder who attended to seven-year-old Soren at the scene. He had asked the boy if there was anyone left in the house, to which he replied, My mother, my little brother, and the woman who started the fire. One of the firefighters who was there confirms these words. Later, when the boy arrived at the hospital, he asked the staff where the woman with the fire was. It is thought that when Soren tried to get out of the house, Elizabeth locked the door to the garden. Bent testifies for several hours. He talks about the affair and about Elizabeth's behaviour after he ended things with her. He never once looks at his former lover in court. Elizabeth's behaviour, he explains, became increasingly erratic in the weeks leading up to the fire. Once Bent had told his wife about his infidelity, the couple started receiving phone calls from an anonymous number, but the caller always hung up when either Bent or Birgit answered. On the strength of the little boy's words, and the fact that, as the forensic evidence shows, Birgit died before the fire started, 
the jury doesn't find Elizabeth's statements credible. After only a few hours of deliberation, they find her guilty, and with that they accept the prosecution's theory. Elizabeth administered morphine to Birgit and started fires in three different places around the house. The judge rules that when Sorin tried to get out of the house, Elizabeth locked the door to the garden. Pursuant to Section 180 of the Danish Penal Code, Elizabeth is found guilty of the murders of Birgit and her two sons and sentenced to life imprisonment. She immediately appeals the decision, but the High Court likewise rules that there are no mitigating circumstances and upholds the earlier sentence of life in prison. It's a remarkable sentence. Since the Second World War, no woman in Denmark has been sentenced to life. In the media, Elizabeth has been dubbed Bornholm's Doctor Death. The media try to revive the case more than once. In 1999, for instance, a Danish television channel produces a documentary setting out alternative explanations for the fire. A Swedish fire expert, meanwhile, challenges the explanations of his Danish colleagues and reasons that the blaze may have been started by tea lights. The candle may have set fire to the blanket that covered the sleeping Birgit. Her seven-year-old son then spread the fire because his pyjama bottoms caught a light when he discovered the blaze. Elizabeth continues to maintain her innocence. With a new lawyer by her side, Elizabeth turns to the Danish Supreme Court. Those who've been found guilty of a crime in Denmark can't dispute the guilty verdict. They can only challenge the sentence. Besides, a retrial will only be granted if new evidence has come to light. Elizabeth's new barrister accuses his predecessor of incompetence and accuses the Danish state of a miscarriage of justice. But in 2000, the Supreme Court rejects Elizabeth's request to reopen the case because there's no new evidence. Three years later, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg also dismisses the case. Those sentenced to life in Denmark usually spend 14 to 16 years in prison. After 12 years, prisoners can apply for early release and spend the remainder of their sentence on parole. The decision to grant early release is in the hands of the Minister of Justice. When an application is rejected, a new one can be submitted a year later. After serving 14 years, a prisoner can appeal the rejection in court. Whether or not a life term is reduced to a conditional release depends on a range of factors. Does the person continue to pose a threat to the public? Is the offender capable of reintegrating in society upon their release? How great is the risk of reoffending? And has the prisoner consistently demonstrated good behaviour throughout his or her sentence? Elizabeth starts serving her sentence in a prison close to Copenhagen, which houses prisoners in need of psychiatric care, including sex offenders. This is where she meets a male inmate who's serving an eight-year term 
for abusing and causing the death of a three-year-old boy. The two marry in prison in 2003. Later, shortly after the building is completed in 2005, she's transferred to the women's wing of East Jutland State Prison. At first, Elizabeth's request for a conditional release is turned down. But in 2009, after more than 13 years in various secure units, Elizabeth Weaver is given the chance to slowly return to a life outside prison through a reintegration process. Elizabeth is now nearing pension age and passed her probation a long time ago. She has changed her name and lives with her husband in southern Denmark. When the press last managed to track her down ten years ago, she was thinking of becoming a church warden and doing something with her musical skills. She never had any children. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts.